The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. I'm your host, J.B. Johnson. We've got a great program tonight because we're going to do a couple things. First thing we're going to do is talk about this coronavirus, and uh, we'll be bringing in uh, Jordan Lyons, who is a returning guest to the program, to give us a few minutes to chat about what's going on, because depending on who you talk to, this is either the end of the world or it's nothing more than the common cold that's getting way too much hype. So uh, we'll be talking about that with Jordan in the first part of the program. And then in the second part of the program, we'll bring in Paul Wallace. Paul is a researcher, and he's written a book that discusses the idea that the human species is actually the product of extraterrestrials, and that that information is actually decipherable from the Bible. His book is called Escaping from Eden, and it's available on April 24th. It's not out yet, but it discusses this very topic, and Paul will go through the evidence for us that he has researched and put into this book, and we'll get an idea of of what this idea is all about. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, these discussions are always fascinating. And we've had a lot of discussions about the Bible for different reasons recently. It seems to be something that a lot of people are looking into with uh, much more seriousness than they have. And I'm not talking about those who, who, who obviously have a real religious respect for the Bible, which I do too as well. But I'm talking about people who are taking a look at it from a historical perspective, a... Uh, scientific perspective and in this case paul wallace says that there's actually evidence in the bible that suggests we are the product of alien uh races so we're going to look at all that uh just a quick look at what we've got coming up on the show tomorrow night tim cohen will be here to talk about prophecy and then on wednesday jeffrey doherty he's known as the christian whistleblower we're going to be talking to him as well so a lot of great stuff coming up on the show. But again, I, I wanted to go back to this coronavirus discussion. I've mentioned it on the show a couple times in the last couple of weeks. How can you not? If you're in the media, you need to talk about this. Or you feel compelled to anyway. But there's a dispute going on as to whether... Now, let me just say this. First of all, I you know any communicable disease is serious. There's no no question about that. And I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But in the age, the day and age of 24-hour cable news channels that have to talk about stuff, sometimes things get overhyped. And I'm not sure where we are on this. And I'm hoping that our guest, Jordan Lyons, will be able to help us out. Jordan, welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us again. It's been a while, but uh, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, you know, the average American doesn't know what to think, is, is my opinion, because I, I don't know what to think. On one hand, you've got the federal government uh, taking some extreme actions because of the spread of this coronavirus. We're hearing about death counts and, and death numbers rising around the world. Um, but in, in, in some cases, that could be attributed, not the deaths, but the reaction by the federal government to the response to what people are saying more so than what the disease is doing. Help us sort this out. What are we looking at here as far as, as, far as the coronavirus goes? Well, you hit the nail on the head um, in your intro there, that it's either one side says there's nothing at all to worry about, this is nothing more than the common cold, and then you've got the other side 
saying it's the end of the world. And like most things, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Um, you said it well that any communicable disease is serious. Um, now, the level of concern that the world is showing now, um, will it be that same way a year from now, two years from now? Probably not. But right now, while we're facing the threat of this novel disease, and the, the key word there is novel, um, it, is, it is very serious. Um, but I'm sure, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes, the, the level of concern or the level of anxiety someone should have over whether or not they might acquire it uh, depends on who they are, where they are, and what they're doing. Now, one thing I have to say is that we don't get news reports of uh, you know hundreds or even thousands of people dying from the common cold. Of course, the flu has that effect on people. Flu is a deadly virus, but the common cold doesn't. So, so what's different different about the coronavirus as it relates to the common cold that causes death versus um, you know the common cold, which tends not to do that to people? So, the coronavirus is actually part of a family of viruses called coronaviruses. And they're subgrouped into four main categories, coronavirus A, B, C, and D. Um, some of the more famous coronaviruses, if you want to put it that way, would be something like MERS and SARS. Um, now, the severity of this new novel coronavirus, which has been named SARS-2, by the way, um, doesn't seem to be as severe as MERS or SARS-1 just in terms of um, its mortality rate. But you're right that it is a, a virus um, that causes a, a cold-like illness or a flu-like illness. And so in that respect, coronaviruses and influenza viruses are similar just in the types of symptoms um, that they bring on. So while the common cold may not cause, uh, be the leading contributor or factor in someone's death, a lot of times, uh, Coronaviruses that cause the cold or influenza viruses are a part of a bigger picture that causes someone to, to pass away. And so you're seeing in these media reports and um, reports from the CDC, which is where you should be getting all of your um, most accurate information, are that the people that are dying from this illness are people with comorbidities, meaning they suffer from things like diabetes, uh, renal failure, um, COPD or other chronic illnesses that weaken their immune system over time and make them more susceptible um, to suffering of fatality from this sort of illness. Do we know if that's true of all of the fatalities? Are they all people that have already had some kind of compromising health condition? No, it's at this point in time, is because it's such a rapidly spreading and it's such a rapidly evolving um, situation, obviously numbers are changing. Um, you know, it's it's easy to get online and see these statistics, but something the common person should understand in terms of um, something like this, an infectious disease, is that statistics are kind of fluid in the sense that a statistic in China may not be, might not have the same level of truth in the United States. Um, but to answer the, the harder question there, um, I, I do believe the information that we're getting from the American government and the CDC is accurate that the virus appears, at least appears, to be um, sparing the young, which is a major difference um, compared to the influenza virus. The influenza virus is very, very um, hard on children, especially under the age of two. 
But from what we understand right now, most of the fatalities are those in their 60s or above and that have comorbidities. Many people are planning spring travel. I'm one of them. I actually have a trip booked to go to Canada, to the west coast of Canada, and then immediately after that to Holland and then to Germany. And, uh, you know, I've got myself second-guessing whether or not I should be going. Um, What do you say to people who are either making travel plans or uh, have plans and are trying to decide if they should keep them? Uh, Is is travel okay in, in, in the age of coronavirus? I would tell those people that um, to, to remain vigilant and to protect themselves. So you've got all sorts of things happening. You've got governments making decisions, uh, restricting travel. Um, you, people are getting recommendations left and right um, about how to prepare for this and how to face it. But your best advocate and your best protector is yourself. And so there are plenty of things that you can do to minimize the chances of acquiring something like a coronavirus or any uh, other number of viruses that are out there this time of year, including other coronaviruses or influenza virus. And so for travelers, I would certainly recommend carrying hand sanitizer, washing your hands as frequently and as often um, as possible. And unfortunately, people don't like to hear it, but hand washing um, is generally uh, the best line of defense if it's done properly. Um, and you'll see the CDC and other news outlets reporting you have to wash your hands for 20 seconds. And there's a reason for that. Um, you need that friction to lift those germs off your hands. So it's very, very important to be washing your hands. That hand sanitizer, if you're in a, a really confined space, um, you need to do your best to distance yourself from at least six feet um, from anyone that appears to be having a, a cold or a flu-like illness. Respiratory masks uh, might be something to consider if you're traveling via airplane although I do know the CDC is currently recommending that all healthy persons who maybe aren't international travelers um, do not use the face mask as uh, there's a high demand for those in the healthcare field right now. If um, the reports are correct, and I'm not sure if they are, but uh, at one point they were saying, and they thought they had determined that the virus is contagious before you become symptomatic. Is that, is that what they're saying now? I don't know what the latest is. Yeah, there's still a lot that needs to be determined about this. And so what I said earlier about the scary part of this being the word novel is that there are a lot of unknowns, a lot of things that we don't have answered, that maybe a year from now we'll have a lot of these answers. We just don't right now. That's why I have to take extra precautions. Another reason the word novel is scary is because um, as a human race, our bodies have never been exposed to this virus, meaning we don't have that immunity build up um, as a human race. And so that's why I think... And a few years after it has continued to spread, unfortunately, um, I I think it will continue to spread, and the CDC and the government seems to think so, too, and so that should be an expectation. Um, But as it does continue to spread and our our immune systems have a chance to to build against this, I think we'll see a drop drop in the number of cases and the level of severity um, as time goes on. But, yes, something like the influenza virus, you can be contagious a day or two before symptoms show, so it would not surprise me if that were the case for the coronavirus. What's the, uh, what's the protocol if, A, you think you've been exposed to someone who turns out to be positive for coronavirus, uh, or, B, you become symptomatic yourself? The first action someone could take, should take if they think that they either themselves are infected with the coronavirus or have come into contact um, is self-quarantine. Um, that means uh, isolate yourself from 
family members as best as you can and other people staying home from work. Um, and then contact your local or state health department. Um, there's a lot of really terrific public health workers around this country working overtime and preparing and putting protocols in place in order to combat this. And so the, I would encourage and urge the general public to take advantage of that. And there are very specific um, procedures in place for reporting. So if you have any suspicion at all, please please call your either your state health department or your local health department. So I guess the final question here related to this particular virus, you can't turn on the news or you can't turn on Beyond Reality without hearing this discussion anymore. But I think I think it's important that we, we clear up some of the misinformation. So I guess the, the bottom line here is should we or as collectively or individually be panicking about this virus? The simple answer is no. There's, there's absolutely no need to panic. Nothing good ever comes from panicking. I would just say remain vigilant. Pay attention. If you turn off the news and instead go to the CDC's website, go to your lo- go to your local health department or state health department's website. That's where you're going to get the most accurate and timely information. And I would trust those um, health professionals. Um, no offense to anybody, but to people on the news or the radio, I would I would really urge the public to go to those sources um, to get their information. The CDC website, you think, is the best spot. Absolutely. CDC.gov. Great. Um, now, last time we had you in the program, I'm just going to keep you for a few more minutes here, but last time we had you on the program, we were talking about your books. What's what's the latest in, in your work? Oh, I've been busy um, nursing, but I've also been busy doing a little bit of writing myself. I'm, I'm currently working on a new uh, fiction series based on um, the history of playing cards and the tarot. I actually caught your guest the other night. I think his name was Mark Horn. Yeah, that's uh, right. Talking about the terror. That was a really fascinating guest and it's a really fascinating subject. Yeah, he, he was fun to have on the program. Well, we appreciate you taking this last-minute time out to help kind of steer us, uh, navigate us through this uh, issue because, it, it, you know, again, you turn one channel on, they're telling you one thing. You turn something else on, you're hearing the complete opposite. And as you said, the truth lies somewhere in between. Where can people get more information, Jordan, about what you've got going on? Uh, you can find some of my books available on Amazon.com. Uh, just search my name, G. Jordan Lyons, and you'll find a couple of my books available on Kindle there, or you can visit my personal website, uh, gjordanlyons.com. Well, we appreciate you coming on about this particular topic, and we'll look for a time where we can schedule you to come back to talk about your other work as well. Sounds great. Thanks, JV. All right. Thank you, Jordan. All right, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll have our second guest for the evening on. That's Paul Wallace. He's a researcher. We're going to be talking about his book that evidences uh, shows that the Bible and contemporary science may support the idea that humankind is of ET origin. Going to be interesting. That's tonight's program on Beyond Reality. We'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Thank you for being with us tonight. And again, thank you to uh, Jordan Lyons for joining us in that first segment to talk a little bit about the coronavirus. Whether it's hype, whether it's not, clearly it's an illness that we need to be concerned about. And clearly there are people that are dying from it. So it's obviously something we have to pay attention to. But sometimes the media hype can exceed the reality. And we need to be awfully careful about that, too. You know, we're having runs on stores Uh, And surgical masks are in short supply, and the medical community actually needs them, and they can't get a hold of them. So let's just be smart about how we handle this. The second part of our show, this is an exciting conversation. I'm looking forward to this. Paul Anthony Wallace is our guest. He's a researcher, a speaker, and an author. 
on books of spirituality and mysticism. He researches the world's mythologies for how they speak to our origins as a species and our potential today as human beings. His new book is called Escaping from Eden, and it's available in about a month and a half, April 24th. Uh, Paul, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's great to have you with us tonight. G'day, JV. G'day from Australia. Yeah, hey, how are you guys faring? I mean, you, you've had those horrible fires, and uh, are, have you been affected by this virus and all? What's going on in the land down under? Yes, yes, there are some effects here. It's been a bumpy start to 2020 for Australia because you're right, we had bushfires across the country, and now we're just preparing to go to another stage of alertness in response to uh, this awful virus that we're hearing about. So just waiting to see how that shapes up. Wow, it's uh, some of the stuff just, um, you know, you kind of scratch your head and we're all kind of moving along, minding our own business, and next thing you know, particularly where you are, you've got half the country on fire, and now we're dealing with a, with a crazy virus. I guess everybody just has to be uh, vigilant all the time. I think that's the only answer. I think that's right, and I like what you were saying just now, that uh, we shouldn't be over-alarmed. The, the media always love to talk about awful things, and they can push us into a far greater state of alarm than we need to be in sometime, but yeah, just to stay appraised of what's going on, I think, and Keep washing your hands. Yes, that seems to be the answer for a lot of a lot of sins. Keep washing the hands. Hey, tell us about the book, Escaping from Eden. Well, Escaping from Eden, I think it's the ninth or the tenth book that I've published, but it's very different from all my previous books. My previous books have all delved into uh, history, biography, spirituality from a mainstream Christian kind of a viewpoint. Uh, this new book will certainly surprise people who've read my previous books, and it may surprise a lot of other people as well, because the subtitle tells you what it's about. Escaping from Eden, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? And it just might surprise some people to hear a senior churchman come out and say, hey, guys, I think a whole bunch of the Bible is not really about God at all. It's about our ancestors' intersection with another species. And that is the uh, narrative that's explored by Escaping from Eden, not just from studies in Genesis, but studies in narratives and mythologies all around the world, and also touching on some really interesting fields of contemporary science that uh, would support that view as well. So that's what it's all about. So the approach here isn't necessarily just... Uh, exploring the idea that the human race comes from some type of uh, alien or ET origin, but you're actually saying that clues to that and information about that can be found in the Bible? That's right. We're familiar with um, the Bible in its current form, but of course the Bible took a while to evolve into its current shape, and scholars have a, a pretty shrewd idea of what the different stages were when the different books arrived and got added in. And then in about the 6th century BCE, there was a major edit done to turn the whole of the Hebrew scriptures into a single work and to monotheize it. And it's at that point that, escaping from Eden argues, a whole load of other narratives that were really narratives about ET contact got obscured through some decisions of translation. And we forgot something really vital about our history as a species. At what point did this notion, this idea, these ideas, 
show up on your radar to the point where you decided that you were going to explore this? Well, a little seed was sown in my mind when I was uh, 11 years old, when I first encountered Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Uh, it was being discussed at a dinner party that my mum and dad were hosting, and it was always a treat for me and my brother to go along to those and uh, try and keep up with the grown-up conversation. <laughs> and my ears pricked up when they talked about Eric von Daniken and Chariots of the Gods because he was identifying what I felt was a real gap in what I was being told about our origins as a species. From the religious end of things, I, I found answers a little bit uh, lazy, and they didn't quite explain why we are so much like the animals. We're obviously some kind of an animal, and I couldn't quite get my head around why that would be so if God was creating everything from scratch. And then from a scientific viewpoint, there's a gap in explaining us as well, because, J.V., if you think about it, we're not very well adapted to planet Earth. I mean, this latest virus is just uh, one, for instance, but all the other animals live in the wild quite happily. If you or I, I shouldn't presume about you, J.V., you might be able to do this, but perhaps if you or I were left in the wild for three days, three nights, we'd probably need hospitalizing or we might have passed away. So that's not very well adapted. The only reason we're at the top of the food tree here is because of our higher consciousness, our higher intelligence, our ability to create technology. And that was a gap that science wasn't able to explain. We are an anomaly in that way. And Eric von Daniken named that gap. He says, there's a gap in the story here. How did we come to be this intelligent, this technological? And of course, his argument that was that there was an intervention in our evolution that upgraded us. I didn't know at the age of 11 that that is a very, very ancient idea, and you can read it in the narratives of indigenous peoples from all around the world. But I first heard it from him, age 11, and so that sowed a seed. But the thing that really kicked me into the point of thinking, oh, my goodness, uh, I've got to write about this. First of all, I've got to get my head around it, and then I've got to share the journey was something that happened about a decade ago. I don't know if you might remember this, JV, but Pope Benedict XVI called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in 2009 to convene a colloquium. Does this ring any bells? It, I, I, I am not recalling that. Oh, well, you know, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by... How few people remember this because it was an amazing moment. My jaw absolutely dropped when I heard about it. The Pontifical Academy of Sciences, he called on them to convene a five-day colloquium. So that's a symposium of top theologians and top scholars, five days of closed sessions. But there was a big, big build-up to it. Um, the Vatican wanted us all to know what this was about. They were going to be discussing the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. Wow. And I thought, where's this come from? Because only 400 years ago, the same institution was burning people to death right. for just suggesting there might be intelligent life on other planets, and now we're going to have a conversation about it. And then when the Pope's spokespeople went to meet the press, after that colloquium, they said some really surprising things. So Jose Gabriel Funes, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory, was briefing the press and saying, we need to be ready 
sooner than anyone anticipates, he kept saying, to embrace a brother or sister alien. And I thought, sooner? Sooner? What do they know? Because it really gave the impression they were wanting to get in ahead of perhaps some other disclosure being made by another authority so they could say, oh, don't you remember? There's nothing to worry about. We've talked about this, and we realized there was no issue. It looked like that. And then another spokesperson came out. It was Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who was a senior exorcist for the Roman Catholic Church. And he said this. He said, when people report close encounters or abduction experiences, they are not reporting a demonic encounter. It's not a psychotic break of some kind they're describing. They are reporting a completely different kind of entity and one that merits serious study. Now, when someone who's more or less speaking for the Pope says that, that's a very significant affirmation of other kinds of entity. And in context, he meant extraterrestrial species. Another guy, um, Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, came out and said, we shouldn't really speak in terms of there being aliens because there'd be creatures of the same creator, there'd be children of the same heavenly father, and we shouldn't be surprised to come across them because they're in the Bible, he said. They're in the Old Testament. And when I heard that, I thought, how can that be? Because I've been a believer for more than 30 years. I've been training pastors in how to interpret the Bible for more than 15 years. How could I have missed if there are aliens in the Bible? And so I took that as a bit of a challenge. I thought, okay, as soon as I have the time, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to look at this. Are there aliens in the Bible? And so time came in the book. I I call it uh, an ultimate Frisbee injury that took me out for a while and gave me some time to study. So I drilled down into some anomalies in the stories of beginnings in Genesis to take up that challenge. And to my shock, I discovered that from the first two verses of Genesis right until the end of Revelation, there are E.T. presences described and affirmed in the Bible that even in the current edit, you can't really miss once you're looking for them. That's powerful stuff, and and we'll get into some of the detail of that. I want to go back to your mention of Eric Von Daniken and his work, Charity of the Gods. That film and book introduced me to a world as well, and it's the world that eventually led me to be hosting a, a radio program about these topics it seems to have done that for a whole generation. Do, do, do the ideas that you present in your book uh, go hand-in-hand hand with uh, Van, Van Daniken's uh, um, theories as he's presented in Chariot of the Gods? Well, my, my start point uh, would be a little different, but I must say I take my hat off to Eric Van Daniken because what he did with that book Uh, and then especially when it became a movie, was he took a topic that was really taboo, that really had uh, an embarrassment and a cringe factor around it, and he made it mainstream. He made it a part of mainstream conversation, so much so that I, aged 11, was talking about it at school. People were talking about it in their churches. They were talking about it around dinner tables, so I absolutely applaud that. I wouldn't dot his every I, cross his every T, but I think, his main story uh, is on the money. 
my start point was different because I was coming at it really as a preacher, wanting to dig down into the Bible to get some better teaching material. That was my agenda. And to address some of these challenges. Yet in the back of my mind was what I'd read age 11. And I did think there was credibility to the idea that there was ET contact in our prehistoric past. What I didn't realize until I really got going with my research was that it was a lot more than contact and that it really was a hands-on involvement in shaping us as a species. So there are certainly some, some areas where we absolutely overlap, um, certainly in the area of archaeology. We touch on some of the same things. But uh, people might be surprised how I've got to these conclusions from a very different start point. You described yourself as a believer. You said you have been a believer for 30 years as, as we talk about the Bible. Uh, have, do you consider yourself a religious person? It's, you know, it's a funny um, era for labels. <laughs> um, yes, it is. Because if you use the word religious or, or Christian or evangelical, there's so much baggage that comes with those words. So right. I think what, what I'll say is I do believe in God uh, in the sense of uh, a primordial source of all things. And... Um, I believe in God in, in a way that I find described by Plato, for instance. 400 years before Christianity, he describes this beautiful vision of God as the primordial field of consciousness and love and harmony, which exploded into the material universe that we all uh, live in. And I have a very high view of Jesus. I seek to be a follower of Jesus so I, I prefer to say those things than to uh, grab onto too many labels because people might start making assumptions as to what that means. But at the same time, I was for 33 years involved in ministry, in Foursquare churches, Anglican Episcopal churches, and that's been a very important part of my journey. We're talking with Paul Wallace tonight. We're talking about his book, Escaping from Eden, which is available. Paul, that's available April 24th, right? It's not out yet. Now, if you go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, you can pre-order it right now, and it will hit your shelf shortly after April the 24th. Tonight, our guest is Paul Anthony Wallace. We're talking about his book, Escaping from Eden. By the way, you can get information about Paul and all of his books at his website, Paul Anthony Wallace. That's W-A-L-L-I-S, Wallace.com. Paul, let's talk about some of the anomalies in Genesis. Um some of the things that you found as you started to look into this that maybe perked your uh, your interest even more, raised an eyebrow or two, what'd you find? Yeah, there are anomalies that would be familiar probably to any adult who's ever sat down with a children's Bible and a child. Uh, and I'll run through a few of those. And then there's a really key anomaly that I discovered in my research. But the the familiar ones, one of your listeners was talking about verses of the Bible that make you go, huh? And I, I call those my James Brown moments where I'd read and go, wait a minute. And these moments, a child will ask these questions. If you start from the beginning of a child's Bible, a child will say, why does God say, let us make? Who's the us? Let us make humans to look like one of us. One of who? And then how can it be an afterthought that Adam might need an Eve? Wouldn't an almighty God have 
thought of that instead of presenting him with all these animals instead. And then the snake appears. Well, who's that? Why did God make the snake? Couldn't God see what was going to happen? Couldn't he see Adam and Eve were going to eat the fruit? And then why the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit? That's a bit harsh, isn't it? And then get to the flood and we're describing the genocide. And a child will want to know why a God of love would genocide a whole rate, a planet full of people. And so often when we read these moments, we think, uh, we, we try and answer, and we think, wow, yeah, that doesn't really make sense. I'm going to have to look at that another time. And then, of course, we get busy, uh, and the, uh, the urgent things of life get our attention, and we, we don't come back to our questions. As a preacher, of course, you, you have to deal with those. You keep being confronted with them. You try and make sense of them, but all the while you're thinking, wait a minute, there is another layer to this story that must make sense because the top layer isn't quite making sense. So those questions are questions anybody would have. But as I started drilling down into the text, there's a key word that absolutely unravels the familiar picture. And it's one of the words that gets translated as God. Now, there are two key words that get translated as God in the stories of beginnings in the Bible. One is Elohim, and one is Yahweh, the holy name, the name that was revealed to Moses. Now, that's a later name. So we know right away that we're reading a version of the stories that's been rewritten by somebody after the time of Moses, because this later name has been put into stories that are centuries, maybe millennia older, than the time of Moses. And obviously the writer's wanting us to see all these as God's stories. And so the holy name appears from the beginning. So as soon as you realize that, and that edit has been done in plain sight, we can all see it as we read the text, it raises the question, well, what was it before the Yahwist editor changed it? What were the texts he was working with before he put the holy name in? And the answer is he was working with the Elohim stories, the stories of the Elohim. Well, what's, it, what's Elohim? Elohim gets translated as God, but it also, in other places, gets translated as demon, demons, gods, small g, false gods, landlords, angels, chieftains. It seems to be a very elastic word. And then I noted it's a masculine plural form, a plural form word. It sometimes takes plural verbs and exhibits plural behaviors, like the let us make, let us make humans sort of like one of us. We don't want them to be too much like one of us, etc. And the more I looked at it, the more I had to ask if it's a plural form word and it takes plural verbs and has arguments with itself and conflicting agendas with itself, might we actually be looking at a plural here? Something looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck. Should we consider the possibility it might be a duck? And I took that question to some Hebrew scholars and some very erudite and senior Bible translators, and I discovered there's a very real problem and question here. So I went back to the texts and thought, what happens if I reread all these familiar stories with Elohim in the plural? If you take the roots of the word, it means the powerful ones. I'm going to read these as the stories of the powerful ones. Well, of course, the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. 
As soon as you read the stories of beginnings with Elohim in the plural, the stories suddenly line up with the Sumerian stories from which we believe they were taken, on which we believe they were based. They line up with the Sumerian, Arcadian, Assyrian, Babylonian stories that we can read on the ancient cuneiform tablets, and they line up with other narratives all around the world. Now, what's significant about that is that the stories that we find on the clay tablets of Mesopotamia, the Sumerian ones, we read those and we can find stories that sound, way. that's a bit like Adam and Eve. That sounds a bit like the fall. That sounds like Cain and Abel. There's another story of the flood. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. There's the limitation of human life. All the stories occur there as well. And we find that what's in the Bible is a summary form of those ancient stories. But those ancient stories don't have God in them. Those ancient stories are the stories of our ancestors' intersection with another species, who the Sumerians denoted as sky people, or sometimes called Anunnaki. And as soon as you see that, it's like taking the red pill in the Matrix. Uh, a whole new world opens up, and you can't see it the old way again. You can't go back. As soon as you realize that in Genesis we've got a summary form of stories about sky people, everything changes. When you started to look into this, did you go into it as a skeptic? Did you think you were going to disprove these ideas when you started looking through the Bible and looking for references? Or were you were you in did you, were you in the middle of the road, or did you go in fully expecting to find this? I was somewhat in the middle of the road. I had come to the conclusion that we are not alone in the universe. So that thought wasn't too terrifying to me. Um, and I was aware of a moment in Genesis 6 where another species is named. And so a lot of Bible readers would know about that. It's the story of the Nephilim, right. a strange human hybrid storyline that occurs there and in other narratives around the world. So I knew about that. But when I heard... Um, Monsignor Corrado, uh, not Corrado Balducci, it was Guy Consolmagno, say that it, the Bible was full of aliens from start to finish. I thought he was exaggerating, and I just did not expect to find that borne out when I dug down into my study. But to my surprise, it turns out to be a really fundamental storyline that begins in Genesis and continues through the Hebrew scriptures. And it seems that those scriptures affirmed the existence of these other beings for a long, long time, so that it really was only in the 6th century BCE that those storylines were finally obliterated through works of translation and then became forgotten. But for a long, long time, the understanding was there that even if you were a follower of Yahweh, we live in a universe and a world full of other kinds of entities. And as I say, once you've taken the red pill, it's so obvious that we're reading about a colonization of planet Earth by beings that have come from somewhere else, and they take charge of planet Earth and, and then manage the human population, even to the point of deciding how long we'll live and how intelligent we're going to be. You found the red pill by doing your own research. 
Is your book a red pill for uh, others who don't have the maybe the fortitude to conduct that type of detailed research? That's really my hope, because any writer writes because they want to share a journey that they've experienced. And it's the same for me with Escaping from Eden. Uh, There were these things that I half knew that I hadn't given much attention to that once I did, a whole new world opened up. And I want that world to open up for others because for a long, long time, people have not felt comfortable discussing these ideas or even thinking them, and especially in faith communities, especially in church communities. And once again, we need to break that taboo. I am contacted every day by people who've become aware of Escaping from Eden, who see me on the Paul Wallace channel or on the Fifth Kind TV. Every day people contact me and they tell me about experiences that they've had. And often they'll say things like, there was one guy who really stuck in my mind. He said, I had an encounter, a close encounter when I was 15 years old. I've now just retired. So he's 65. And uh, that experience changed my life. I've told my wife, I've talked to the person I was with when the event happened. And in the 50 years since, I haven't told another living, breathing soul. But I want to tell you because I still need to process it. I still need to get my head around it. The culture we're in is still so uh, ridiculing and shaming of people who've had experiences that they're silenced for half a century of their life. I find that so unacceptable Mm -hmm. and so unintelligent. We would inform ourselves if we could give people the respect of listening to them. And so that's another reason I've written Escaping from Eden, to break the taboo again and say, look, there are very good reasons for us all to be in on this conversation and thinking about these things. Do you think your book and other works are starting to change that paradigm a bit? I tend to think that we are slowly, but methodically turning a corner on the idea that we can have these conversations in open forums without ridicule. I'm seeing something of a shift, um, particularly in America, not so much in Australia, perhaps Mm -hmm. not so much in the UK, perhaps, but certainly in America and through work like you were doing, it's happening. But also I think through a process of what I'd call soft disclosure, Um, We're being drip, drip, drip fed little bits of information that will soften us up to the idea that we're not alone. So last year, an important example of that was when a 70-year-long policy was changed and the U.S. Navy could say publicly, we have been engaging with UFOs or UAPs and we don't know what they are or where they're from. Well, that was how um, the Navy and American Defense spoke about UFO phenomena in the 1940s. And then in 1947, the National Security Act was signed by President Truman, and it was decided it all had to go silent. And we couldn't acknowledge these things, and we had to debunk them and ridicule people uh, and even destroy people if they came out with a non-canonical story. And that policy remained in place until last year. And so I see it as quite significant that that has shifted. And now 
official people in their official positions can come forward and say we've been engaging with these things. That's just one example of a soft disclosure process. I think the Vatican with their colloquium was another example. There was an amazing moment, I think it was 2012, I don't know if you remember this, Prime Minister Medvedev, the Russian Prime Minister, on camera, he was asked about extraterrestrial civilizations if there was contact. And he said, uh, I'll say this just once, there's a Russian documentary, he said, called Men in Black, not the Will Smith movie, <laughs> I hasten to add, a Russian documentary talking about E.T. presence on planet Earth. And he said, if you watch that movie, basically they're right. Everything they're saying in that is right. When you become prime minister uh, in Russia, you get given a folder deta detailing all the species we're currently in contact with. Now, you can watch that for yourself. It's there on YouTube. What was interesting is that Putin didn't suddenly release a statement saying the prime minister was talking out of turn. He was incapacitated. It had a bit too much vodka. He was only joking. <laughs> there was no kind of debunking at all from official circles. It was just left out there to hang for people to hear. And I think, again, that is another little step in a process of soft disclosure. Essentially, I think, uh, my suspicion is that the authorities are simply trying to avoid a moment, a big bang moment, when they say, hey, We've got something we need to tell you. <laughs> We're in contact. We've been in contact for a long time. Sorry we didn't tell you before. Obviously, that would be difficult politically. And so I think rather than have a big moment like that, we're seeing it in movies, we're hearing it from the Navy, and we're hearing it from witnesses who are allowed to speak without being attacked and destroyed. And these are shifts I'm seeing. So I think we're ready. I think we're ready for escaping from Eden. And I think we're ready for more of a, con a mainstream conversation about these things. And it touches on not just are there other beings out there, but what's our relationship with them? Were those Catholic spokespeople right to talk in terms of ET family? Are we that connected? Are they here for good? Are they here for ill? Are we secretly stockpiling new technology to try and fight them off? Or have we got some allies? Can we not all please be in the picture? What's the gag order that the U.S. federal government was under, just for lack of a better way to describe it, where they decided they, you know, it was forbidden to talk about this after 1947? Was that uh, motivated uh, by, by religious, um, either individuals or ideas? And the second part of this question is, as the papacy has obviously started to open up about some of these ideas so has the U.S. government and the U.S. military. Is that connected as well? Yes, I think connected, but not necessarily through some carefully orchestrated collaboration. As I say, when the colloquium happened in 2009, I felt that the, the curia was wanting to get in ahead of what might come from another source. So I don't think there had been conversations at, at a government level I think maybe there have been conversations at that level, which is why we're seeing um, America shift its policy. And the USA is, is one of the last uh, governments in the world to move on this because there's been a massive declassification of UFO files all around the world over the last decade. 
and America has lagged behind a little bit. And uh, I, I, I can guess at why, but I would only be guessing. But I just think inch by inch we're, we're trying to keep up with each other in gradually letting the cat out of the bag. If there was an effort as the Bible was being revised, revised into the version that we know currently, if there was an effort to cleanse it of some of these stories, ideas, why did they leave some in? Why were some left there to serve as markers or red flags uh, if, if they were trying to avoid this conversation? That's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, I should say that the, the cleansing of the Bible, I don't want to present it as some kind of conspiracy theory, some horrible dark agenda that was forced on the Bible, because I think that the translators probably thought they were doing the Scriptures a favor. After all, uh, Joshua, the uh, leader of the people of Israel after Moses, had called on the people of Israel to reject and forget about the powerful ones of their Sumerian heritage, talking about Abraham and Sarah, who came out of the child days, and, and brought these, these stories of the sky people with them. Forget them, he said, and follow Yahweh. And then in the Ten Commandments we've got it, have no other powerful ones, worship only Yahweh, don't bow down to any other powerful ones, don't even depict them, don't even draw pictures of them. And so I think probably the translators were trying to work that through and, and tidy the picture up so that we've just got a monotheistic message that is only one God, which was was the message that they wanted to put out. But there's only so much you can do to monetize the stories because some of them are so obviously a push and pull between different foreign factions with humanity sandwiched in the middle. It's very difficult to get rid of these other entities. So um, one example would be Genesis 3. We've got the story of the fall. And there's a strange push and pull there that in the current version, God seems to want to hold human beings morally accountable, but he doesn't want them morally aware. And then isn't it odd that it's the snake that wants to improve the humans' lives and upgrade them and give them better intelligence and better consciousness? Isn't it strange that God wants the humans to remain so unintelligent they don't even know they're naked? It's odd. But once you, once you translate Elohim in the plural, you realize you've got two factions here. You've got some powerful ones wanting to upgrade the humans and some powerful ones saying, no, they're going to be hard to manage, which is how it's expressed in other narratives around the world. There's a classic moment. Every preacher will have struggled with the story of Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac. Uh, it's a very ingenious preacher who can get a positive moral out of that story. But in, in case you're not familiar, there's a story in which you read it the current way, God tells Abraham to kill, to sacrifice his only son. And then at the last minute, when he's about to um, bring the knife down, he says, no, don't, stop, only joking, you do something else. Now, in its current version, it is a horrible, horrible story because the moral seems to be don't question God. Don't ever question God morally. You do what you're told, and you don't ask questions. Well, 
We've just had a royal commission in Australia and a royal commission in the United Kingdom to deal with where that kind of thinking takes us. If you can't question God morally, if you can't question those who speak for God, you end up with all kinds of horrible, horrible abuse. It's not a story of faith, which is often how I've heard it preached. If a member of my congregation came and told me, Paul, you wouldn't believe it, I nearly killed my son this morning. Literally, I I had the knife at his throat. I, I changed my mind at the last minute because a little voice in my head said, no, don't do it. If I heard that, <laughs> I wouldn't say, you are a man of great faith. I would be contacting the police right. and child service. Okay? That's the morality in the current version. But drill down into the vocabulary. You've got Elohim, powerful ones, telling Abraham to kill his son, which is what uh, you look at ancient religion around the world. Sadly, you see a lot of that. If a being can get a human to kill their child, it means they've got total control over that human. Kill their firstborn, there's nothing you can't get that human to do. It's the powerful ones who tell Abraham to do that. And then a messenger from Yahweh says, don't do it. So in the earlier version of the story, Yahweh appears as the savior, as the rescuer. But when the uh, translators in the 6th century BCE said, oops, there are too many gods in that story, let's make it a monotheism story. Okay, now there's only one god in the story. They're both translated as god, but the god in the story is a monster. And that's another reason I feel really urgently about escaping from Eden. We have to, we have to understand the layers in these stories because for a long time, We have read it as if God does these atrocious, genocidal, abusive, unforgiving, cruel, vicious things, but we're not allowed to say that because we think God did it. But if you worship a God who does atrocious things and we excuse it, that makes monsters of us. And that's why we've got to name it for what's going on. These are the stories of The stories of beginnings are stories of traumas that our ancestors experienced as they bumped up against another presence on planet Earth, an extraterrestrial presence that had come and colonized us and that were running us as their workforce. As you look through the Bible and you researched the these passages and and determined where there were references that may have been misinterpreted that actually support these ideas that we're talking about tonight, how far through the Bible does that occur? Does it occur only in the Old Testament, or does it does it get into the New Testament as well? It's the Old Testament that has curated these stories. They are stories from, um, you could almost say from prehistory, although I'm beginning not to believe in prehistory uh, because we have the accounts. But certainly it's in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that you've got an account of our beginnings, our origins, uh, a number of planetary recoveries, uh, when I believe these other beings turned up, and then a period of history where you appear to have human colonies being governed over by these other entities. That's there in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, um, there are hints of an awareness of that that we often miss because we haven't read the original version of the old testament first but the stories of 
who we are, where we've come from, it's in the Old Testament that you really need to look to find those. So if if we uh, accept that that the version that we're presenting here tonight, if we if we talk about it in that sense, and you as you say, use the plural, when we get to Jesus and we get to uh, essentially what Christianity is founded on, what? How do we explain that? Where where is that just is that just stories? No, I don't think it is just stories. I'm I'm convinced that uh, Jesus was a, an historical person because of the references that we find outside of the Bible in uh, Roman chronicles. I studied some of them when I was at school when I was uh, studying Latin as a young boy, and the references to Jesus himself and to what his followers did. And very often they are references made by people who are not friends of Christianity. I think if I follow all that, I'm very convinced that Jesus was a historical person. I take the record that we have of him in the Gospels very seriously. But I think that we've often framed him in a far more um, religious way than perhaps we should. And I think primitive Christianity got hijacked pretty quickly by the Roman Empire to become the uh, Roman Department of Religion. And some of the, um, the simplicity uh, of gospel Christianity got lost. It became a religion of worship and obedience. And being a good citizen and a good Christian, those ideas kind of got fused a little bit. Uh, but if you look at the Gospels, I think Jesus is somewhat different to that. And he was someone who said, I did not come to be served. And that word served is a worship word. So if you just sit with that for a while and think, is Jesus saying he didn't come to be worshipped? And then look at what emerged in institutional Christianity. You can see we may have missed something somewhere along the line. But unfortunately, there was a point in Christian history where it got so fused with imperial power, we reached a point, for instance, where there was an emperor who illegalized all non-Christian religions. And what that meant was um, getting rid of priesthoods, it meant executions, it meant burning books or archiving them, and losing all this other layer of story. And this limiting of information, you can find that happening in the story of the church as well. But right back at the beginning, in the beginning of Christianity, there were some very significant leaders, church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, um, a guy called Marcion, who was later deemed a heretic. They were very foundational figures who were very, very affirming of the teaching of Plato from four centuries before, and they believed his account of human origins. And his account was one that lined up with the view we've just been talking about, which is that we were happily evolving on planet Earth, and then another species arrived to intervene in our evolution and upgrade us. And they saw no conflict between that storyline and their faith in Jesus. And that's the sort of territory I'm in. We're talking with Paul Wallace tonight. Again, his website is his name with his middle name as well, Paul Anthony Wallace. Wallace is spelled W-A-L-L-I-S. PaulAnthonyWallace.com. You can 
get information about the book we're talking about tonight, Escaping from Eden, also his other work. Paul, let's talk about some other disciplines that might support these ideas. Is there any scientific evidence to support this? Yes, there is. I think if you want to find a scientist, a real credentialed, peer-reviewed scientist who takes this line of thought seriously, one of the best places you can go is to DNA research. Because right from the beginning, uh, there have been scientists in that field who have believed that our DNA did not originate on planet Earth. So uh, if you think of uh, Crick and Watson, who discovered the double helix of DNA, uh, Francis Crick believed that our DNA was of extraterrestrial origin. And along with others, including uh, Leslie Orgel, Carl Sagan, they taught something called panspermia. And that was the belief that the genetic coding for conscious intelligent life is something that has been disseminated through the galaxy, and that when it lands on a hospitable planet, it results in the kind of life forms that we're all familiar with. And so from the 60s on, DNA scientists have been putting that idea forward. In current research, there are two scientists, Vladimir Sherbak and Maxim Mikulov. They're from the Kazakh Al-Farabi National University and the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute. They spent 13 years on the Human Genome Project, and their studies in human DNA has led them to the conclusion that our DNA has been intelligently designed by some other intelligence. They find that through finding a repetition of primes in our DNA that they said the chances of that happening randomly are so obscure as to be impossible. For that to happen by chance, it's a one in 10 trillion chance. It was obvious to us, they said, that we're looking at something that wasn't randomly generated, it was intelligently put there. So those are top authorities in DNA research saying intelligent intervention in our evolution, something from off-planet. And they say, ultimately, we're we are all going to have to accept this because this is becoming a consensus within DNA research. I find it intriguing that Carl Sagan is in that uh, group. This is something he wrote about in the 1960s. And, uh, of course, he put that into his movie Contact, the idea that we are part of something much, much bigger than the human race on planet Earth. So that's a great place you can go to DNA research. And it's been taken so seriously that the European Space Agency has spent over, I think it's $8 billion, uh, particularly on the Rosetta Probe project, testing for the building blocks of life on comets because they want to see if there is material evidence for this theory of panspermia. That's how seriously it's taken. Paul, if... if the aliens that intervened in human development did so are they are they this are they still here are they still among us are they are they the the aliens that are reported to us in sightings in stories in craft that people happen to see is it the same race or races that's a really good question my researching for Escaping from Eden led me to the view, particularly looking at the text of the Bible, 
that there are a number of ET presences named. And there's this funny body that's talked about in the Hebrew scriptures called the Sky Council or the Heavenly Council. And <clears throat> I call it the Sky Council because their behavior isn't very heavenly. They're very much in conflict with each other. They have completely different ideas about what they should be doing. And it looks like an uneasy truce among a number of ET presences who are stakeholders in planet Earth, and they have different ideas about how humanity should be managed. Um, so I think it may still be the same now as then, that there are a number of different interests out there. And as to whether the original ones are still here, I'm not sure about that. If we think about what colonization looks like on planet Earth when we colonize each other's countries, often when we go into somebody else's country, we'll go in with force and we will overwhelm the other country with our military force. We will take over. We'll be the police. We'll be the army. We'll be the school teachers. We'll maintain order. We'll set up the banks. But then after a while, you can begin handing some of those things over. The locals can appoint their own teachers. The locals can appoint their own police. They can have one of their own in the governor's residence. And in fact, once you set the commodity prices and the exchange rates and you've got banking set up just so, you could probably go home to your own country and still enjoy the benefits of sitting at the top of that economic tree. And I wonder if that might be similar to what happened to our ancestors all those years ago when somebody came from somewhere else and colonized us. If you're listening to the podcast version of this show, we encourage you to find our YouTube channel and become a subscriber. Just go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. When you find it, hit the subscribe button. There's no fee. It's all free. You can also hit the notification icon. That way you'll know when we upload bonus content or we stream live or whatever we happen to be doing. It's a great way to be part of our community. Plus, there's a live chat room there. During the live streams, the chat room is quite active. Most of the time, they're paying attention to what we're talking about. Sometimes they get off on tangents, but they're always making me smile and laugh, so it can't be a bad thing. Tonight, we're talking with Paul Wallace about his book. It's a new book. It's Escaping from Eden. It'll be available April 24th. It's available for pre-order now, Paul, are you 100% convinced that you've found the answers here? Do you have any doubt left? The things I've become convinced of uh, are in the book. Now, that doesn't mean I know everything, but it means that I've identified things that need us to think seriously about them. So evidence is from neuroscience. And we've got serious neuroscientists asking the questions I was just asking you, questions from archaeology, questions from astrophysics, questions from DNA research. But there is plenty of data that I put into the book that is real information and then hopefully sends the reader on a journey. So the things I've become convinced of, that's what I'm sharing in Escaping from Eden. When we, there's still plenty, plenty of mystery out there, that's for sure. When we get some kind of significant disclosure, whether it's from the U.S. government or any government, or maybe it, it'll, maybe this whole thing will bypass a government, maybe we will have the proverbial uh, spaceship on the White House lawn or whatever it takes. When we have that event, will we then have the answers to this? I think... Um, the reason we're in a period of soft disclosure is because 
I think governments want us prepared just in case something like that <laughs> does happen. I think they're very much hoping not. And an example of um, trying to take control and keep the pace of information under government control would be something that happened in um, the Iraq invasion of 2003, which was an amazing episode when within just a couple of weeks of the Allied forces getting into Iraq, under the protection of Allied forces, an archaeological team led by a guy called Jörg Fassbinder went into a site they had identified as the probable site of the tomb of Gilgamesh. Now, Gilgamesh is a really significant figure from the Sumerian stories because they identify him as a hybrid of human and sky people. So if we could get hold of that sarcophagus and DNA test it, then we could either falsify the story and say, oh, it was just a story, or we could verify it, in which case everything we know about ourselves changes. Well, they went in with great fanfare. Jörg Fassbinder went on the TV, was saying we're 99% certain this is the tomb of Gilgamesh. We're going to test it. It's really exciting. This is amazing. And then silence. And we didn't hear anything. Didn't hear anything until 2005 when Jörg Fassbinder said, um, we decided not to investigate any further. Uh, we decided it would be safer to bury the site because there's so much looting and stuff going on there. We just thought we'd leave it and not investigate any further. But that doesn't quite hang together because it was important enough that as soon as we were into Iraq, we were at that site, but not important enough to investigate it in the 17 years since. And that's not the first time that's happened. 1927, Leonard Woolley discovered a figure called Queen Puabi. Again, let's DNA test that person because she was royalty. Let's see if that's 100% human DNA. We can falsify the story or verify it. But obviously it's been shut down. And if you talk to people who've been uh, on active duty in Iraq, they will tell you there were a lot of archaeological sites that we went to very, very quickly as soon as we were in and we located the stuff we wanted there, and then we never heard anything about them again. So that's a fairly recent event, 2003, and that adds up to still trying to manage the flow of information, um, you know, hide the UFO on the White House lawn and just keep the drip, drip, drip going until a later time. That seems to be how it's rolling out. So is it your uh, thought that some of this information has been verified or, or, or maybe disproven one way or the other, and the information is being withheld and being used as part of this slow-timed, overtime release. Um, is, well, is, was something discovered there? Is that your impression? I think that's the logic of it. I yeah. think that really is the logic of it. And it's similar to the, the policy of silence over UFOs because in the 1940s, authorities were saying, we don't know what they are. We're going to investigate it. There's been another one. We're going to investigate that. And then the policy changed to they don't exist. We're not telling you anything. Nothing's happened anyway. And it seems to me that the logic is they didn't know what they were. And then as soon as they did know what they were, they didn't want to talk about it. And I think it's probably the same storyline with <laughs> Gilgamesh's tomb <laughs> and other finds. What do you hope people will walk away from after reading Escaping from Eden. What, what, what's the 
What's the what's the outcome you want people to walk away with? For me, it's it's opened up a far more exciting universe that we live in a populated universe, and the possibilities of that uh, may be in part scary, but are in part very exciting. One of the reasons that Ed Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, was very strong in supporting disclosure and calling on the government to disclose contact was for the technology that he believes our governments are sitting on, technology that could revolutionise our life on planet Earth. And so to get more open conversation, I think, could be tremendous for the human race as a whole. But for the reader of Escaping from Eden, there's something more personal that's really exciting to me. and It touches on what I was saying about acquired savant syndrome and how the narratives say that we used to have higher faculties. We used to be able to do things like remote view and have precognition and more telepathic ability, and then we got downgraded. Acquired savant syndrome syndrome says actually those can be knocked back on and i noted in my research that the cultures that have curated these ancient stories of our engineering they've also curated mystical and shamanic practices for centuries and millennia aimed at heightening our consciousness switching some of these inhibitors in our brains off so that we can have a more conscious more intelligent and better human experience And I'm excited about that, not just for the sake of having superpowers, but because I think we could live better lives and live as a better society if we could re-upgrade ourselves. The moment we realize it's not God's hand that has us here, we could actually operate at a higher level. I find that inspiring and really exciting. George Norrie, who is the host of Coast to Coast AM, of course, and kind of the grandfather of what we do here, Paranormal Talk Radio, said that your book is this generation's chariot of the gods. How do you feel about that quote? Uh, I was so thrilled uh, to hear him say that because I take my hat off to Eric Von Daniken for making this topic mainstream, taking something that was taboo, that had a huge cringe factor around it, and making it something that people talk about in school, at church, at home, at work. That really is my hope for Escaping from Eden, that my book will do that for a whole new generation. So I was thrilled to hear him say that. But you've done a tremendous amount of work. You are excellent at presenting these ideas. Um, Paul, I appreciate your time. Once again, let people know how they can order an advanced copy of the book. Uh, It'll be released April 24th, but they can order it now. Tell them how they can do that. Yeah, you can pre-order it right now at Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold, you can pre-order Escaping from Eden. If you go to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and the Fifth Kind TV, you can keep up with me there. And if you go to paulanthonywallace.com, W-A-L-L-I-S.com, you can keep up with everything that's happening that way too. It's been a a very interesting conversation, Paul, and quite an eye-opener, and I appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us from Australia tonight. Oh, thanks, JV. It's been great to be on the show with you. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.